0: Um, okay, so my name is Isha Doshi. I'm a third year medical student. Um, uh, my name's is Drish, I'm also a third year medical student.
1: Hi, I'm Danielle. I'm a third year law student. Chloe,
0: also a third year law student. And joining us today is Professor Barrett. Um she's gonna be the faculty advisor. This is going to call <laughs> <laughs> it. Okay, okay, so kind of a brief understanding of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to go through. The most common maternal complications, and we're going to move on to fetal complications. What legal next steps victims and survivors can take. What resources are available for both you to give to your patients and for your patients themselves. Um, what initiatives that we would like to see to further these, um, efforts and kind of a Q and a session afterwards. Um, where we can ask Professor Barrett about her experiences. So, starting with maternal complications. So, we already know from a few talks that we've had this year that intimate partner violence is very prevalent in our. Society, but specifically a special population of those victims and survivors are pregnant women. Every year 3324,000 pregnant people in this country are battered by their intimate partners. When you break it down, that means 28% of pregnant women experience physical assault, 36% experience psychological or verbal abuse, and 20% experience sexual violence. Just to put this a little bit in perspective, both for the administrative level and the, the provider level, That includes 250,000 hospital visits a year, and it costs 8.3 billion dollars per year. And mind you, these are just IPV survivors who are pregnant. But the biggest, most impactful statistic that we found is of maternal mortality. Death rates, the biggest leading cause was homicide at 33%. And to be the leading cause of maternal mortality, the amount of research and efforts that we've seen in our society today do not match up to the level that we're seeing. So, just a brief overview of how we're going to break this down. 1st, we're going to talk about risk factors and triggers for these complications. What special populations within pregnant women are disproportionately affected and then move on to the mental health and physical impacts. So, this is a study that was done in uh, 2016 to 2019 in the United States as kind of a screening study to understand what the status quo looks like. Now, most of the factors that we saw in this study were very similar between pregnant and non pregnant women. But the biggest impact that we saw was that women who had a mistimed or unwanted pregnancy reported 3 times higher levels of abuse. When comparing those who had intended pregnancies versus those who did. Now, the the reason why we want to bring this up is that as the physician, you are the 1st person to talk to them as a professional about. Their care and their pregnancy, and so starting the conversation just on your 1st, prenatal visit about whether this is something that they wanted or not can kind of set the tone for you as the provider to understand where to go from there and whether or not you believe this was a wanted pregnancy or not. It's important to start that conversation. So that your patients don't feel like they need to bring it up themselves because that itself can be a lot of pressure. And so this allows us to open the door for that conversation to happen if. Or when your patients would like to have that conversation. Um, something that we also noticed when doing our research, um, that. Women who experience IPV who are black indigenous or people of. Color are about 3 times more likely to suffer prenatal death than women who don't experience IPV to put this a little bit in perspective on the 1st page. We saw percentages ranging from 28% to 36%, but black women experience 45% of black women experience those same impacts. 48% of American Indian women experience that same those same impacts that's 20 to 25% higher consistently across the board. And the biggest reasons for not getting this are the same reasons we see in society for every healthcare issue things like lacking insurance coverage, not having access to affordable healthcare, not trusting your providers. Um, and the, that continuous cycle that we see of racism affecting those that are disproportionately pushed away from healthcare, you as the provider, again, need to focus even more on these societies, but we're seeing that disproportionate population worsen even more. Um, another aspect of this that we wanted to highlight is that the United States is actually very behind what other states, other countries are doing right now. So, this is a study, the first study um, done by BMC Women Health compared um, London and England to other developing countries. And they tried to understand if there was a difference in socioeconomic status and country and laws to see what the um prevalence of intimate partner violence in pregnant women women was. And what we saw is that across the board, the same things mattered. But across the board, there are studies in all of these other countries. There are studies in Bangladesh, in India, in um, South Africa. There are multiple studies that not only screen for it, but also talk about the kind of care that these pregnant women are getting and the stats on what those complications are. When we, as medical students looked at that, we didn't find anything that identified maternal complications and fetal complications for a long period of time, or that could directly correlate or even associate that. To the care that we're providing the laws that are made in society today. Do not directly reflect any evidence that we see. So, how are these laws being made? The world health organization finds that 736Million women. That are age, 18, uh, 15 years or older, so that's almost 1 in 3 women experience this form of violence at least once in their lifetime. And as pregnant women, this number is 1 in 7. We're seeing this across the country, but also across the globe if the rest of the world is providing this evidence. Why aren't they? Kind of just a brief overview of how that mental cycle for a lot of these IPV survivors can worsen in pregnancy. So let's take problem substance abuse, for example. If this is something that's already been occurring, because we see that as a common side effect of IPV, a way for survivors to deal with the situations that they're in, that leads to delayed access in prenatal care because of their substance abuse. They may not qualify for certain insurance companies, they may not have access. To get to their providers that leads to complications for both the mother and the fetus. This can lead to premature labor. This can lead to things like postpartum hemorrhage because of the premature labor. This can result in the fetus having a low birth weight. But ultimately, all of these complications will only further worsen these mother's mental health. And that same problem that originally started because of their mental health is now going to perpetually cycle. We already know that intimate partner violence is a perpetual cycle. But now you're adding the factor of another life and you're adding the factor of every physiological change that this mother is having, including mood swings, including fatigue. And if that cycle is going to continue, why don't we see an even bigger emphasis on screening for IPV for these women. If we already know that this worsens their situation in an already terrible place. To kind of put this into perspective of how one single event of IPV can worsen in multiple different ways in the short and long-term effect, we've put this kind of very strong image for you to kind of understand how one effect can affect multiple different organ systems. Um, This can be neurological, this can be respiratory, breathing changes, voice and throat changes, and these are not symptoms seen immediately after, always. As providers, it's important for you to look at these signs, regardless of if your provider or regardless of if your patient tells you that they're having that. This accumulation of symptoms can hint you in that direction, but it is important to be aware that sometimes the symptoms you see are not isolated events.
2: Okay, we're going to move on to some fetal complications. It's just like the same theme with maternal complications. There's not a lot of research done on fetal complications. There's even less. Um, as you can imagine, it's probably very difficult to get women to. Participate in a study that have undergone IPV and then look at their fetuses. But what we do know is that for women who have faced IPV in their pregnancy, there's increased risky behaviors that also like they engage in during their pregnancy. Um, so just like what Isha was talking about, sometimes they don't access prenatal care, and um, that can have a whole host of effects. There's increased infection rates without seeking an OBGYN and getting the antibiotics that you might need. Um, as well as increased substance abuse, so increased smoking and drinking during pregnancy, which we all know can have very adverse outcomes. The ACOG, so American College of Obstetrics and gynecology actually reports a prevalence of IPV of upwards of 23% in pregnant women, which is like a lot large amount of pregnant women. Um, and one of the biggest complications that's been cited throughout in the literature is just preterm delivery and low birth weights. And while that seems like it's not that meaningful or that impactful, um, small gestational age can put you at a lot of risks in the future, like neurological effects, just like just neurodevelopmental defects. There's a study done by Yost um, who screened for IPV during pregnancy, and they found a 7.5 fold increase in women um, or in neonatal deaths among women who had faced IPV. So that's like a large amount of fetuses that were for neonatal deaths. Um, they found 0.2% of neonatal deaths in women who had not experienced IPV, but 3. Point, or 1.5% in women who had experienced IPV. And there are multiple case reports in the literature showing broken fetal skulls during IPV or in pregnancy due to IPV. Of course, again, it's hard to control like cause and effect, but there's a lot of case reports of, you know, women not coming out about this trauma or OBGYNs not screening um, and having these broken fetal skulls that we are associating with IPB. So the biggest study or one of the biggest studies that's going to be published later this month actually is um, done in South Africa about looking at brain volume. So, They they gathered women who had experienced IPV within the past twelve months of giving birth, and then they compared brain volumes by sex um, um, via structural MRI. So they had about a sample size of 150 women, and they found that there were significant changes in the size of brains of these fetuses. What they found specifically is that there was a significant decrease in the size of the caudate for females, but a significant decrease in the size of the amygdala for males. Again, it's hard to predict what those outcomes will be later n- down the road um, since they haven't looked at that. But the caudate generally is responsible for your voluntary motor uh, movements, and then your amygdala is important for your emotional regulation. Um, so, again, more research should be done in trying to figure out what the downstream effects of this might just be. Other previous literature has looked at female children and adolescents, but this isn't neonatal specific. Um, but they have found that among women who, among mothers who had experienced IPV, their children, especially female children, had enlarged amygdalas, um, again, with no clinical correlation or no research clinical correlation. Um, and it's important to note that, like, an increased caudate volume is a marker for neurodevelopmental disorders in the first two years. So we can imagine that these children are facing increase neurodevelopmental disorders.
1: So Danielle and I are going to talk about safety planning and legal relief for survivors of DV. So first we're gonna talk about what is safety planning. Safety plan is a set of actions and strategies that a person may use to lower The risk of being harmed by their abuser and to optimize their safety. This should include strategies to prevent um, and or escape danger at home, school, work, or any other place that the survivor goes on a daily basis. Survivor might want to be guided through the process of safety planning, but they might also want to create the safety plan on their own. While safety planning should always be encouraged, whether or not to create a one is ultimately up to the survivor. Safety plan is only going to be as effective as the survivor's information is honest and accurate. So forcing a survivor to create a safety plan won't benefit anyone, especially not the survivor. If the survivor doesn't wish to create a safety plan, you can provide them with resources that will allow them to do it on their own, it's pretty easy to do one online. It's important to always keep a survivor's safety at the forefront of your mind when working with them in any situation. So before suggesting a safety plan, you should counsel them on the possible risks associated with physical and electronic safety plans. For physical safety plans, it can be hard for them to hide them an abuser. If they don't have a safe place for it, it could put them in a dangerous situation. You can suggest that they keep it with a family member or friend so that the abuser won't find it and that they can have a physical copy, but not everyone has that. On the other hand, electronic safety plans can be dangerous because a lot of abusers will access search histories in these survivors' devices. The survivor can erase their search history, but some web and purchase histories can't be deleted. Like, if you download an app on the Apple app store. You can't erase that history. So, generally, a safety plan should include a code word or phrase. So, if the survivor has a friend that they can call, they can tell them about the code word, so that when. They call them and use that the friend knows that they're in danger. If they don't have anyone they can call, you can also create a code of phrase. um, For if they call the police, but they don't want to alert the abuser that they're doing that, like. You know, some people have called the police and said they were ordering a pizza and usually the um, operator will understand kind of what's happening. That the person is in danger. There should also be a list of emergency contacts and support systems just. Both for Emergencies, but also for emotional support, just anyone that the survivor can go to. There should also be a list of safe places to go. If the survivor has children, this should include safe places and people for the children to go to if there's a dangerous situation. There should also be a plan to disrupt work and public habits because the abuser likely knows the uh, survivor's everyday habits. And they should be disrupted if they are afraid of running into the abuser. Um, there should also be a plan for keeping the survivors home safe if they plan to continue living there without the abuser. If the abuser has keys, locks could, should be changed. Stuff like that. There should also be a list of items that the survivor should take with them if they have to leave home quickly. It can include medical documents, IDs, birth certificates, marriage certificates, divorce certificates. Just anything that's irreplaceable or necessary
3: to their lives.
1: For pregnant survivors, a safety plan can also include, um, you know, just a reminder for the survivor to stay on the lowest level of their home if there's more than one level in their apartment or house, um, because there are a lot of risks associated with stairs. If they have to rush out, then they might fall down the stairs. If they're being abused, they might get pushed down the stairs, and that's very dangerous. dangerous, especially with pregnancies. They can also incorporate a safety plan into their birth plan. They can determine a code word to use with the medical personnel that are present for the birth to say they're feeling unsafe and they want the abuser removed from the room. They can also provide the medical personnel with pictures of the abuser and say that they should not be near them during birth. So it's pretty easy to find resources for safety plans. You just have to Google safety plan um, template online. I think a really good one is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. They have an interactive safety plan where you fill out, you or the survivor will fill out all of the information and it'll save it. You can either save it as a PDF, you can save it online or you can print it out. So it has options for whatever situation the survivor is in. There's also an app called the MyPlan app that's available on Apple and Android devices. And it's anonymous. It has a, you can make a pin that's a real pin that'll let you access your safety plan and a dummy code that will bring up a neutral screen. So if the user forces the survivor to give up a pin, then they won't necessarily be giving up their safety plan. And you can also change the icon on your um, home screen. So if the abuser is looking through their phone, they won't see that it is a safety planning app. Okay, and I'll hand
4: it over to Danielle. Hi, everybody. So I'm going to talk about the different forms of legal relief that are available to a survivor. Um, typically, the most common way that we're looking for in terms of legal relief is going to be an order of protection. An order of protection is a civil order from family court um, that can provide a different amount of protections, and we're going to go over some of those. Important to know that on the order of protection, you do have to um, prove the intimate relationship. So, are you married? Do you have a child in common? Have you been divorced? Um, do you belong to the same family? Things like that. Um, you also have to indicate the incidence of abuse. Um, so, to receive an order of protection, the family court must make a finding that a family offense has occurred. Um, common family offenses that you might see: stalking, assault, strangulation, harassment. Um, also, revenge porn under New York law is a form of a family offense. So, really important to know if you're talking to a patient about have they been hurt physically, have they been followed, things like that. Those are family offenses that would rise to the level of receiving an order of protection So, there are different types of orders of protection. What's really, oh, sorry, there are different forms of orders of protection. What's really interesting to know about them, especially for pregnant survivors, is that a final order, one in which that the judge would provide, um, would can last up to five years. So that's very important for a pregnant survivor, thinking about the future with their child. There are three different types that they can receive, a refrain from. Essentially, saying that the abuser must stop what they are doing, no longer commit any family offenses. So, no longer follow the survivor, physically injure the survivor, and so on. A stay away order in which the abuser cannot go to the home, school, business, or anywhere near the survivor. And that can also include the child of the survivor. And then finally, an exclusionary order. The uh, this would force the abuser to leave the shared residence and remove all belongings and find alternate living arrangements. And what's interesting about orders of protection is that these are not mutually exclusive. These can all be contained in an order. There's other forms of relief that can be um, included in the order of protection, such as forcing the abuser to go to batterers education program, which can include um, referrals to substance abuse. um, Counseling things like that, and the abuser would be um, have to cover the costs that would be entailed with that. Um, Also, the abuser could have to pay the survivors medical bills. So, any injuries that actually rose to the occasion of getting the order of protection, the abuser can be ordered to pay for those bills under insurance or out of pocket costs. Um, You can also have the abuser refrain from injuring or killing a pet of the survivor or their child. And finally, uh. Really important that it can revoke the abuser's firearm license and also force them to surrender any firearms that they have in the home. Um, really important, survivors do not need a lawyer to file a family offense petition. They do not need a lawyer to receive an order of protection. A survivor can go down to family court in the county that they live in. So if they live in Albany, go down to Albany Family Court and they can ask the clerk to file a family offense petition. That's going to get the ball rolling into receiving an order of protection. Um, If it is an emergency situation, they can ask to see a judge that day or the next day to receive a temporary order of protection. And that'll get them relief within a few days to get some sort of relief from their abuser. Also, if the survivor has physical injuries and they're visible, definitely encourage that survivor to take. Pictures over the healing process, because that is important and they can include that in their own petition. Or if they get a lawyer, they can include that in their petition as well.
3: I'm going to turn it back over.
0: (laughs) So, this is a quote from a patient at, um. (coughs) Sorry, Drexel University, a non trauma informed system punishes and blames your adult actions and asks, what's wrong with you, but a trauma informed provider. We'll hold you accountable for your adult actions, but give you the space and time to process what happened to you without adding guilt and more trauma. We added this quote in to emphasize that 1 as providers, we do need to have trauma informed care. And that's something that we should be thinking about regardless of if your patients seem like they've been through a traumatic experience. But also 1 that says that a survivor does not immediately need to take action. As a physician, you have to be okay with the fact that they may choose not to take an action and by forcing them to do it or asking too many questions. You may pressurize those same patients who would now be deterred from approaching healthcare. So, the the point we want to make is if they want to go to family court, we can present that option to them, but we cannot push them to do that. Um, something I really wanted to talk about today is just what is the United States doing right now for intimate partner violence. The reality is that there are no federal laws that directly relate to domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Each state has its own set of laws, but this makes it very challenging for survivors because the minute you cross state lines, the same rules may not apply. The biggest issue that we've seen with these survivors is insurance and that's not just health insurance that extends to life insurance, health, uh. Car insurance property insurance for them to have financial stability. It's important for them to have an avenue to be able to access their resources. And so, by having each state, not do that, it kind of makes it hard for a survivor to figure out where to go. And the biggest thing that we noticed is that, um. The federal government has not mandated that every hospital provider be trained. For screening, Um, there's a commendium that's made every 5 years that analyzes every state's. Protocols, screening methods, training methods, whether they have mandatory reporting and um, whether they have gun violence laws. Associated with intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And if you go through that, commendium, you would actually find that 7 states. Do not allow for mandatory reporting, but the rest do. There are nine states that do not have any form of training that is mandated federally or by the state. And there are 27 states that have no mandated screening process or protocols already in place for every hospital. We are lucky to be in the state of New York that has all of these things um, things that mandate any healthcare professional to be ready with a protocol when they do see somebody or. You recognize somebody who is a domestic or intimate partner violence. Survivor, Um, but it's a shame that we don't have it across the nation. Um, Societies such as um, the family health and violence committee has pushed Congress to reauthorize, expand and increase funding through acts such as the violence against women act and the family violence prevention and services act. But as acts, they do a lot of suggestions and recommendations. They have not enforced many laws. The only laws in place associated with this is HIPAA, which has done a lot um, in terms of health insurance. No insurance company can now discriminate against a survivor, but it does take a lot of evidence to prove it. As the law students explained to us today, having those pictures and immediately filing a family court petition can help you along that process. So, after we're doing all of this research as medical students, we want to know what are we missing and what more can we look into? So the biggest thing that we thought would be important would be assessing what fetal complications we see and what forms of maternal trauma they're associated with. So, as a provider, if you see a pregnant woman with a specific kind of trauma. What are you most importantly looking for within your fetus or within the mother? And this doesn't apply to just their pregnancy term, it also includes postpartum. As medical professionals, we keep an eye on postpartum um, mothers, especially people who, for example, have preeclampsia. Because their initial diseases can take up to 6 months after the delivery to actually show. And so then the same way there should be more literature about these maternal and fetal complications spread after. Pregnancy and delivery, Um, the 2nd thing is to look at retrospective studies within the US that cross these state lines. Um, by having a federal study, we can see if mandatory mandatory reporting is working, if this training is working, if screening is working. Because if we are going to have these state laws in place, they should be evidence based. Where are these laws coming from? Um, we also would like to see more initiatives to emphasize IPV screening in pregnant patients. Obviously, we would like IPV screening across the board, but maybe a population that we emphasize first would be pregnant. And lastly, implementation strategies on how to educate and teach the medical community. Again, we would love to have this on all IPV victims, but um, it's important that we start at least with pregnant women.
2: So, we're going to talk about some resources for you, but also for your patient. Um, Just like we were emphasizing, it's important to screen and it's important to take evidence of any um, IPV. Wounds, but it's also really important to give resources. Some of the studies that we were looking into talked about how, like, many providers will screen, like, almost like a 75% screening rate. But then the. The survivors were given no resources and that doesn't do them any. Good, because that doesn't help all aspects of their lives. Um, so these are just some resources for each county. We have them printed out on like a little. Um, on a little sheet, so I'm not going to go through and read them all, but. These are just um, resources to know in this county, and as you go through clinical rotations, or you just see women, um, or even attendings that might that it might help for them to know. It's really good to pull it out. So, again, if you or someone, you know, is experiencing domestic violence, help is available and that's the national domestic violence hotline. It's available 24, um, 7. you can even text it. And that's our conclusion. We would like to thank Professor Barrett, um, AMWA, OBGYN, Interest Group, um, and TBSSA, the new upcoming club, Um, and, of course, the audience members. Um, Professor Barrett, would you like to comment? Yeah,
3: and then we'll open it to questions. So, we
5: talked about the statistics. and one of the things that we have to think about when we talk about survivors of domestic violence is that um, we talk about lethality risks. So the danger, due to an assessment of danger and the likelihood that someone may die as a result of the domestic violence. And one of the top reasons um, and one of the biggest reasons that um, um, a survivor may die is pregnancy. So as soon as someone becomes pregnant, that lethality risk skyrockets. And then again, another lethality risk is once the baby's born. And so this is important as providers to screen. So not only in pregnancy, but definitely at those postpartum checkups, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever, because um, there, you know, depending on whatever the circumstances are, um, we know that DB increases when there's financial issues. So um, when there's individuals are tired, when there are health issues, there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of these issues come up in pregnancy and postpartum. And so um, as providers, uh, you would be doing a great service by looking for those signs and definitely asking, and maybe not only at the first appointment, but continuously throughout the pregnancy. Um, in addition to that, um, we talked about there not being, you know, it's, it's all very state specific, but, um, as Danielle and Chloe went into details about filing orders of protection. 1 of the great things that does exist is that if you get an order of protection in the state of New York, but then you go to Massachusetts to escape. Um, the domestic violence, and you potentially go there as a pregnant um, person that state has to enforce this order of protection. So these civil orders can be enforced in other states. So they call, you know, they notify the police department and they're enforceable. So it is a protection that actually the survivor has a little bit of control in what is a totally um, not control um, situation, but they're able to continue to get that relief and protection. So um it, it's you know, something to consider in terms of counseling or whenever you talk to patients and if they're like, well, I'm going to leave New York anyway. Right? And so you say, well, that's okay. You know, the, um. Uh, you know, there's protections that exist throughout the country as long as you go to the court in New York. Um, and obviously it could be the same, like, if they were to go to Massachusetts or something like that. Um. So so the, um those are some of the points that I wanted to, to highlight and talk about and then of course open it up for questions. Um yeah. Yeah. No question. <laughs> I if
3: you have The market transfers over to other states, say we were in one of
1: the states where it's not so, like not like New York. Does that still translate to a five?
5: yes so so this is a federal it's it's um it's, i'm not going to go into the the civil procedures um these laws that are quite boring that we learn um as first-year students in law school but basically in any state that you are able to get a civil protection order it has to be applied in another state now whether you're in a state that potentially won't grant you that order, that's that's obviously something, you know, so it could be that, you know, maybe it's gonna be harder for them to get protection in Florida and maybe then you wait until you get to, you're escaping to New York and then you file um, there. You certainly can do that. And then it's also, uh, you know, something to consider is, do you file before and or after the baby's born because if after the baby's born, the baby can be included on the protection order when they're still in, you know, they they can't, we can't include a, a we cannot include a fetus until the baby's born. So um, sometimes it's something to consider, but with that, like all dangers, and when we speak with survivors about um, getting any legal relief, this when they go to court, it's not like the abuser won't be notified, they have to be served, so they're gonna be on notice. So maybe, um you know, a consideration is, do you want them to know where you actually fled to? And is that, you know, do the pros and cons of that.
3: So, what it depends,
5: so it depends the time frame. So, let's say they file for an order of protection and they get what a temporary order that's granted in New York. I mean, there's Cases take a little bit of time, so they—it's likely that it wouldn't be resolved even if they went at the beginning of the pregnancy and nine months later. Um, but what you can sometimes do is, if there's, uh, you can ask the judge to modify an order. So as opposed to filing a brand new petition saying, uh, "I now want to include the child," I am asking to modify the order and you know explaining why the child might be unsafe. <laughs> So, is your question? I'm just making sure I understand. When they file it in court, does the abuser um, right away find out? Uh, so it so it depends. Every jurisdiction. So, like depending on which county you are in, and um, certainly like throughout the state, it differs. Um, sometimes the survivor themselves have to um, to make sure that service of process happens, meaning they have to arrange for the abuser to be served. Not like you can't legally serve them, and when you're a member, you know a party tail lawsuit, but um, you can ask the sheriff to serve them. And so, with that being said, when you arrange for service to happen, or if you have an attorney, they then typically have to return to you a certificate of service saying we serve this person on the X and X date. Um, so, depending on um, you know where you are in like I used to practice in New York City, the courts automatically. Sent it over to the sheriff when there's an order of protection. So there is less um, information available unless you called up. The NYPD, and you found out, oh, like, you know, where they served, um, or if they got an the. Tree. Um, but that's a really, you know, it's important to know because of course, as soon as someone finds out, um then that lethality risk goes up. But with that being said, um, Danielle was talking about the different types of orders of protection you can ask for. The one that's the hardest to get is the exclusionary order of protection. When you remove someone from the home, everyone has a due process rights to where they're living. And so when you remove someone from the home, they have to be notified right away. So like you're, they won't be physically removed without you going to court and them being served um, with that. So that's, Usually, the most dangerous situations because you say, like, you know, within about a day or so, they're going to be served. So maybe you go and stay someplace else until they're served and, you know, the, the police escort them out. Are there any questions in
3: the chat? Oh, (laughs) yes. Oh, you're saying on that. Okay,
1: what else? You want to talk actually, I just wanted to add for orders of protection. Um, we didn't mention this before, but there's not a statute of limitations for filing a family offense petition. So, obviously, you know, it's best if they file when they need the protection immediately but if they wait they're not excluded from doing it there's no statute of limitations for that. Okay.
5: Yeah. That's a big difference between criminal court and family court. So family court provides more protections for a survivor. You're not on this like time
1: um you know timeline of
5: having to go and report. Okay,
3: thank you all for um listening and we will see you next week. Thank you. Right.